So the title of my message was not this, was not Living in Light of the Return of Christ. Uh, I did take that title from someone else, but uh, it really speaks to where we are and what we're studying, Living in Light of the Return of Christ, the end of all things being near. And this is, we're getting hit with multiple angles as far as my perspective is on Jesus, what Jesus said this morning in the, in the text, what we studied about the Lord in a little while and that uh, he will see us again. And this, this imminence uh, of his return, this, um, that we will see him. And here, Peter is saying the end of all things is near. And we're talking, this is like 2,000 plus years ago, right? Uh, the end of all things is near. So there's the imminence of that. Therefore, we are to be a certain way. We are to live a certain way be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What is the end of all things? Well, the previous section that we just read ended with a reference to final judgment, death, and resurrection. The end of all things can uh, be near only because the last days, as we know, have been inaugurated uh, at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've reminded often, I remind you often, people say, we're in the latter days, latter days. Yeah, we have been for a long time, the last days. So don't get caught up in that mindset of, oh, we're right there, whatever it is that's been going on for uh, since Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But we find in the New Testament often a reference to the end being imminent, and therefore, how are we to live? So I'm going to reference several texts. I'm going to go through these texts, and you're welcome to turn there as well, just to... uh, shore up some of our thinking for this evening. The first one is going to be Romans chapter 13 and then Hebrews chapter 10, which is a text I referenced this morning. And then we're going to go to James. So Romans chapter 13. Just two verses just to look at. Again, the eminence. How do we live? End of all things is near. Therefore, how ought we to be? Chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than we believed. In other words, uh, it is coming to an end. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Similar talk to what Peter was saying in the previous verses. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Okay, then Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, then James. Well, let's start in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, of chapter 10 of Hebrews. Okay. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and indeed, brothers and sisters, that is true for us tonight. We have confidence to enter, to approach the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is in his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
Let us then draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see, here it is, the day drawing near, as you see the end of all things coming. Meet together more often, assembling together, encouraging one another, praying for one another. And oftentimes we talk about how uh, difficult the times are that we are living in and how awful they are in many ways. Then why are we meeting less and not more? Or why are some saying, well, I see that and I see all that going on, but I'm not going to go to prayer. Or I'm not going to go to this. And I'm not going to go to that. I'm just going to do the bare minimum and then I'm going to complain about everything that's going on in the world and not meet together more. It should cause us to to think if that is our mindset or if we see others doing that. We say, what is the problem? What is the reason for that? Go to James chapter 5. Verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That's quite a phrase right there. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count, let me just finish this verse. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And then to Revelation chapter 1 and in chapter 22. I'll just read these quick. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I won't chastise you. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. And then chapter 22, verse 10. Chapter 22, verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So this is a theme we see, as we know, throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, rather. The end is near. The time is near. And this is what Peter is saying. And this is what we're hearing this evening. That the time is indeed near. This was, as I mentioned, this was a couple thousand years ago. The end of the age will take place and the new age will come. So if we consider that, we we want to look at the the text as a two-age model. This age and the age to come. 
when, we, when this age ends, Jesus returns, sets everything straight, as, as, we, as we know. That day is near, meaning it is, it is approaching, and it is imminent. And we see this in the Gospels as well. Since the end is near, therefore, we are called to live a certain way. The New Testament does not have us setting dates or using charts to try to determine end-time events. I have seen some pretty wild charts out there. I'm sure some of you have as well. I mean, these things are good. So I don't know where they come up with some of this stuff, but I mean, they've got it all figured out. All these charts, huge ones, colorful, and it's very interesting, but uh, we're not called to try to determine the time, the day, or the hour. Rather, eschatology is used as a way to encourage believers to live in a godly way. So it's not to be like, oh, I wonder what's happening here, or what's happening there. Why don't we say what's happening right here? What am I doing in this time? We're not told to hunker down, right? Does anyone know what happens when Jim Cantore comes on the scene? Do you know who Jim Cantore is? Weather Channel? Okay, that's a Florida thing, right? He's like the main weather guy. Okay, when Jim Cantore comes to Florida, that means there's a big deal. That means the hurricane is serious because he's there on the ground. He's like the head of the, the Weather Channel or whatnot, and he's like the expert or whatever. So we're not to, and he's, he's always saying, hunker down, hunker down. That's like the phrase, like a Category 5 hurricane that's coming. We're not to hunker down as Christians, right? There's that mindset that is there today, to hunker down. But no, we are to stand firm. Schreiner is correct when he says, the imminence of the end should function as a stimulus to action in this world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles whose time is short should galvanize them to make their lives count now. Right? We've looked at that in 1 Peter about us being exiles, aliens, passing through, pilgrims, making our lives count now. Therefore, since, as Peter says, the end of all things is near, therefore, for this, therefore do this, be of sound judgment or sound mind and sober spirit or self-control for the purpose of prayer. Sound mind, a clear mind, sober spirit, self-control. These are very closely related and should be understood together. And these are both attached to prayer for the purpose of prayer. Clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. The Greek verb for self-controlled has the usage of being sober rather than drunk. There's much in this verse that speaks of our need today. Sober-mindedness and clear-mindedness in a culture that just is not that. Not that at all. As we live in light of the return of Christ and being fervent in prayer so that we ought to be fervent in prayer. The realization that history is coming to a close should stimulate us to pray. Because we are dependent upon God. We're dependent on, upon Him for everything. Our prayer shows our dependence upon the Lord, right? 
or a lack of dependence upon God, depending if we are not in prayer. Our dependence on God is manifested in one way specifically, and is manifested in prayer. And then Peter continues, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. So attached to this as well. So think of this. He's saying the time is, I'm in 2 Peter. Hold on, let me get there. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Again, remember what they were going through. Being persecuted, suffering, affliction. And Peter's saying the time is the end of all things is near. Therefore, do these things. And one thing he says here is be above all. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This uh, keep fervent here, many scholars understand this keep as an imperative, which would be a command. Fervent love continually for one another. Peter said something similar in chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from, from the heart. So he said this before, and we're hearing it again, a repetition. And Jesus mentioned that the love of some, as I mentioned this morning, would grow cold at the end of the age. Now love covers a multitude of sins. This comes from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Where hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, let's say what this does not mean. This does not take the meaning that love atones for all sins. If that were the case, this verse would be referring to Jesus as related to the atonement. Instead, it means that when believers love others in spite of their sin, and when they overlook the sins in the life of another. It doesn't mean that sin is excused. It doesn't mean that we let people walk all over us. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sin. Recently in evangelism, there was a guy who decided he wanted to get rather violent with some property. Some evangelism signs. And scream and yell. Okay, sir, you want to do that? Romans chapter 13, there's a law. There are police officers. And they're going to get called on you. And I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, that's okay. Love covers a multitude of sins. No, you're going to have consequences. And indeed, he will. Consequences. Going to threaten, going to do things, there's going to be consequences. You're going to sin, there's going to be consequences. But a love covers a multitude of sins. We know there's people that sin against us. And they don't do anything about it. And we, we love them in a way. But we don't excuse their sin. Let me read this um, here. 
And one theologian says this, you might say, and uh, this covers those two verses we just went over. I, you might say, I wonder why the Apostle Peter, in talking about death and meeting God, says, the end is at hand, the end is near. Be serious and call on God. The very next thing he says is, have fervent, genuine, sincere love among yourselves, because to know God is to love. He mentions fervent love. Above all things, have fervent love amongst yourselves. What is fervent love, he asks. Well, it means genuine, right? Not disingenuine love. Not love that's a lip service. Not love that doesn't have any action behind it. It's genuine. It's not make-believe. It's not hypocritical. It is genuine and sincere. Out of all people in this world, we as Christians should be the one who show love and should have this love that is genuine, not make-believe, not hypocritical, that is sincere. It's not a love in word only. It's a heart love. It is a genuine, sincere heart love for Jesus Christ and for others. Now, we've mentioned, I've mentioned this before, that some people are hard to love, right? We, we all have people in our lives that are hard to love. Let's just be honest. Some people are more easy to love than others, are they not? And then sometimes those ones who are easy to love are very hard to love. Have fervent love. This is evidence that you have called on God and that you have been heard. For love covers a multitude of sins. He said, His love to me covered a multitude of sins and still does. True love to others will do the same. So we consider the cross, we consider what Christ has done for us. That true love, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God, God send his son to the cross? What was the motivation was love? He, he, he covered a multitude of sins for those who would call upon him. We, we have been saved from our sins. And since our sins are covered, you know, we are to have that mindset as well to those who sin against us. That we, we uh, uh, as a way of living to, to love them, which covers a multitude of sins. Not excusing sin, not holding those account, not rebuking sin. We do that. But we do so in love. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there are people, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mean, he's just, he says it pretty boldly here. Listen to this. We are, there are people who are unloving, unkind, always criticizing, whispering, backbiting, pleased when they hear something against another Christian. He's talking about people in the church. He's not talking about people in the world. So let me read that again. He's talking about churchgoers. There are people who are unloving, unkind, always criticizing, whispering, backbiting, pleased when they hear something against another Christian. He says, oh, my heart grieves and bleeds for them as I think of them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming that they are not born of God. They are outside the life of God. And I repeat, there is no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to Christ. Pretty strong words, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some true words. And Peter continues here. So, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. 
Okay, let's look at this. Now, hospitality goes more into more detail, and it is more broad than what is covered here. Because oftentimes when we think hospitality, that just means having people over, inviting them over, and that's that. That's not necessarily the case. There's more to it than that. But here in this culture with this text, this is what uh, Peter is talking about here. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. The theme of fervent love continues with this instruction to be hospitable. Now this really had to do with caring for strangers that were of one accord with them in, within the Christian community and on the mission field. Lodging was unaffordable to Christian missionaries, and therefore it was up to the local Christians to house them. Makes sense. We do some of this today, right, as Christians. Missionaries come in. Well, why put them up in a hotel? We want to have the fellowship. We have the means, whoever it may be. And what do they do? They stay with a brother uh, in Christ. They stay with a family. The level of capability of hospitality varies on life circumstances and size of home. Specifically speaking of the actual having someone in your home, as was done in this culture, without complaint. Though we say, oh, hospitality and having people stay without complaint. How many times do we do this and we have complain about it? It reminds us, though, that hospitality can be burdensome. It can be hard. But if we are going to be hospitable, which we are to be hospitable, and this is spoken of in the epistles of Paul to Timothy and and Titus as well, if we're going to be hospitable, we ought to do so without grumbling or complaining. Third John says this. I'll just read it for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Third John, verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Again, notice the focus that John gives. For the brothers, for those who are Christians, first and foremost. And murmuring spoils hospitality. But remember that, that when we consider um, who we are to focus on first, really, uh, who John says here, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are, the brethren are strangers. And remember that culture that Peter is speaking in here having those stay with them, being hospitable. They may have never met them before. They are Christians. You are staying with us. You are Christians. And they meet them for the first time, perhaps. Now, let's continue on to uh, in verse 10. Okay, so the context again. Keeping fervent in your love, living in such a culture, living in affliction, living as the end of all things is near, Each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now Peter is, and we look at verse 11, but Peter is not very specific here as we would find in uh, 1 Corinthians, we'd find in Romans about the gifts. So I'm not going to be very specific either. I started to get into it and I said, no, He's very broad here, and I'm going to be broad here. 
Each has received a special gift. Employ it or use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So the word received here is very important. Because all too often people say, well, I have this gift. Oh, yeah? Says who? Has, have you, has that been received from God? Has, God? has God given that to you? Have you received that from God? Has the local church said, acknowledge that? Is that functioning within the local church? A special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So received, as a, received a special gift by God's grace. We do not determine what our gifting is. God does. I remember early on in my Christian walk, Calvary Chapel, they had a spiritual gift test, right? And they have all these things, and it's like label like number one through five or whatever it is, asking all these questions, and it can be so biased because you can answer a certain way saying, oh, I kind of like doing this. Next thing you know, by the end of the test, huh, look at I've got this gift. I knew it all along. We ought not do such things. Do you think they had a spiritual gift test in the New Testament like that? It's by, given by God. It is obvious. It, it, it will be recognizable. We do not determine what our gifting is. God does. Several categories of gifts in the Scripture we find listed in places such as Romans, I mentioned, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. And Christians, as we know, we're never to boast in the gift that God has given us because it was given to us by God. A gift from God, His choosing. Right? God has gifted each one of us in here that's a Christian in a specific way with a specific gifting. And we are to use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We are to have this, we are to use it, use it or employ it in serving one another. So there's always stewardship required with the gift. Right? We can have something, whatever it may be, and be poor stewards of it, right? God has given us something. We can either be good stewards of it and try to be honorable with that, or we can be poor stewards with it and dishonorable with it, given by the grace of God. <clears throat> the impl- uh, each has received. As each has received, the implication is that every believer has been given at least one gift. At least one. Some are very gifted in certain ways. Some are gifted in one particular way. The primary uh, context, we ask, where are these giftings to be used? Within the local church, under the authority of elders. And gifts are not necessarily uh, the same as far as if someone has the gift of teaching, someone has the gift of teaching, two people. One may have more of a, a gift in a certain way in teaching, one have more of a gift in a certain way in teaching in another way, or may have a very powerful gift in teaching, whatever it may be. And this one, not so much, maybe in a more simple way. We think of someone like Charles Spurgeon. That was all God. Right? We think of someone who is a regular uh, preacher in the podunk, in the sticks somewhere. That's not a Charles Spurgeon, but he is faithful expositor preacher of the Word of God. That is all God. 
working in him. Different levels of gifting, though, we would say. What is very important is why these gifts are given. They're not given so that we can break our arm patting ourselves on the back, right? It's given for others, to serve others, service to others. Serving one another to strengthen them, to help them. Again, who are these others? Primarily believers, first and foremost. Good stewards of these giftings that God has given to be used as God sees fit. Verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Let's just stop for a moment and consider that is when we have the word of God and when we speak the word of God or we quote a verse, we are speaking the very utterances of God. We ought to be do that with trembling and we ought to do that with fear, a holy fear of God. I mean, we're talking about the very God-breathed word that we are, uh, we are uttering. We are speaking forth, whatever the context is. We are to do so with reverence. The same with serving. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So there's two categories here that Peter alludes to, Peter speaks on. Speaking and serving. Speaking. Apostles, which apostle, uh, the gift of apostle is no longer. And we understand the reasons behind that, hopefully. And then teaching and exhortation and serving, leading, mercy helps, etc. Just being very broad here. But Peter's purpose was to mention these in general, not in particular. And that's why I'm going to do the same. Speaking. Using the oracles of God. His words being faithful in doing so. Serving, serving as if we are serving God himself, right? That's the mindset. Doing so for God's glory with his strength supplied by him. And so that, and here is the reason, and we're almost through for this evening. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's amazing that we continue to be reminded of why we do what we do. We see it in the scriptures. We see it in the doxologies over and over and over again. For the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of who we are serving and why we are serving him. In all things, God may be glorified through Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So we consider what we heard this morning in John chapter 16, what Jesus says, um, the evangelism, that class that is shoring up some of our thinking of evangelism, hopefully sparking us to want to share the gospel more the threading of all of these things together. The the end of all things is near, says Peter. And uh, a little while, says Jesus. So my exhortation is, again, for us to live with an urgency about us and a fervency about us for Christ and his glory. 
Our brother will come and he will lead us in one more hymn. And then if you'd like, you can close us out in prayer.